Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right, hold your horses. Before we jump into uh, this week's episode, right, we just want to say a massive thank you to The Week Junior, who are sponsoring today's episode. Mm. A fantastic magazine that my kids absolutely love because it's like the latest news, but presented in a way that's really child-friendly. Yeah. Uh, Incredible stories from all around the world and mind-blowing facts. And I've got the best one to get us started. It better be good because that was a build-up. Oh, this one is quite something. But we're going to need some, we're going to need our editors to demonstrate this on the screen. Right. Right. Did you know that there are seven octillion atoms in a human body? Right? All those little bits that make up a human body. There's seven octillion, which is a seven followed by 27 zeros. No. So, here it is. I mean, you've you've put quite a task on our editors there. <laughs> well, they can just do this because if <laughs> if if the editor like me is numeral is numerical and alphabet dyslexic, well, wow, yeah, there'll be a one in. There. <laughs> <laughs> it's wrong. It's wrong. It's enough. Um, but you have to visualise it because that doesn't. I can't get that around my head. Seven octillion, twenty-seven zeros. When you see it, you realise like, oh crikey, well that's a billion, and then that's a trillion, and you're still going way way after that. I know because you, you know me and space. I can't get my head around it. No, can't we'll go it. back and listen to our Professor Brian Cox. Yes, episode. very good episode. There you go. You got a fact? I've got a fact. Uh, I'm going to go. You know that I like animals, so uh, I'm yeah. going to stick with the animal theme. Um, did you know that jellyfish uh, poo out of their mouths? <laughs> Dad fact. <laughs> <laughs> poo bum, uh, and they don't have eyes or a heart. Yeah, but that kind of makes sense when you see a jellyfish floating around the sea. Yeah, doesn't look like it as much, does yeah. it? Yeah, it would be easier life generally if we also ate and pooed out our mouths. Would it? It'd be just easier, wouldn't it? No, it's really smelly. No kissing. No. <laughs> Do you know what? Whilst I'm here, can I throw in an extra fact? Please do. Because we talked about jellyfish and hearts. Did you know that the octopus has three hearts and blue blood? Mm. Oh, that, blue blood. That's going to send my GCSE textbooks haywire. Because <laughs> you have deoxygenated blood and oxygenated blood and it all changes colours, red and blue. And yeah, octopuses spanner in the works. I've got quite a few animal facts, thanks to Wheat Junior. Do you want one more? Go on, hit me with one okay, more. Okay, how about this? Shark scales are made from the same material as the shark's teeth. Wow. Yeah, all this sort of stuff. And if your kids love animals, honestly, Wheat Junior got some amazing facts about animals. I love animals everything to do with the natural world yeah i read it for myself yeah well that is the thing actually Forget I, the kids <laughs> i had i had it at home and after ted had finished with it slash when he was still using it i just started reading it 
Yeah. Go to theweekjunior.co.uk forward slash dadsnet hyphen 23 to get your six free issues. That link will also be in the description. A Dadsnet original podcast. Welcome back to the Dad's Net podcast. I'm Al. JK's not here because we've got an interview and he's never here for interviews. Um, this this interview is amazing because we've all grown up with David Attenborough documentaries, uh, whether it's been uh, Blue Planet or Planet Earth 1, 2, and most recently Planet Earth 3. And today I'm super, super excited because... We've, I have been able to spend half an hour speaking to the producers and directors of Planet Earth 3 and the stories that these guys share about how it was made, being on location for months and months and weeks and weeks in caves with no natural light at all. It's a truly inspirational story. You know, we all watch the documentaries and we all kind of look at that footage and go, bloody hell, how have they managed to capture such incredible uh, shots of these animals and they they talk me through it they 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 share like the patience that they have it's a really fascinating listen so uh so we hope that you enjoy this interview with the producers and directors of planet earth 3 we um we have a lot of guests on the on the podcast i think that probably I am most envious of you two because of the experiences that you've been in producing Planet Earth 3. And, and I watch it with my kids and it's phenomenal. It's just fantastic. So like, oh, maybe let's just go back to the beginning. Like, how did you end up producing Planet Earth 3? See how you go. Well, I mean, it started five years ago, which is uh, an incredible amount of time to be making one television show. But it started five years ago, following on from Planet Earth 1 and 2. And, you know, never did we think we'd have a two-year delay right in the middle of it because of COVID. But that set us back a couple of years. We started off making it. We were excited to get out in the field. We had it paused and then had to go do everything we planned to do in super quick double time. We had to film the whole of this ex- extremes episode that I worked on in, in basically a year, which when you normally have two, two and a half years to do it, it was um, somewhat exciting. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's following on from those two mega series. So there's a lot of pressure to get it right. And in a short amount of time as well, it's um, yeah, we're, we're, we're proud of what we've done, though. I think it's a great series. Hugely proud, but to your point, it's a great opportunity and a great privilege. And those first two series inspired us all to want to make natural history programs and then to end up in the last five years making something that's so extraordinary has been a real privilege. Yeah. And and they go down, these programs, as, I mean, I think they're iconic. I think that they're part of the very, very best television that's available out there, bearing in mind there's an awful lot of television out there. Because never in normal life do you get to see what you guys have have filmed and shot and put together for us. What's that like to be able to see those things in in real life? I mean, I suppose you're thinking of the job 
at the same time as experiencing the most incredible things. I think, don't know what you think, Theo, but I think you've got to split those two things in two because on the one hand, it's absolutely terrifying when when you're faced with a series like this because you're trying to raise the bar and that is a pretty hard job when you look at, at what's come previous to that. But once things are going right, it's extraordinary. When you get on location, although you've maybe been on some slightly more difficult location <laughs> yeah. shoots than me, uh, it's extraordinary. The, I mean, the panic at the beginning, the angst when you get out on location, you've done all this research, you've worked with all these people, um, and you've got the weight of expectation on your shoulders. So, I mean, it's almost like Sir David's there kind of looking at you saying, you better get this right. <laughs> Once you get a couple of those first shots in the can, it's extraordinary, isn't mm. it? But I think, you know, the reason why we do it, all of us, I think, is to be out there witnessing those things and to tell the stories of wildlife out there. You know, that's what we want to do. That's what we love doing. And and that's how we get excited. And yeah, it is hard. It is you know, very boring sometimes. Um, you've got to be an eternal optimist to film the things that we do because every day you've got to wake up thinking the thing that is unlikely to happen is going to happen. And then, you know, inevitably, well, most of the time anyway, it does happen and you're like, yes, yes, all that work paid off, all that research. But that's yeah. that's why we do it. You know, we love the natural world and we want to tell stories about it. We also was, want to see really was- different things. I mean, see if you don't mind me saying, you know, one, one of our shoots, one of the shoots that Theo kind of, dreamt up was to go to this place in this cave in in Vietnam it's the known to be the world's biggest cave but to get there you've got to take 500 kilos of equipment on foot for two days through the jungle and then and then he lived underground for 18 days longer than anyone has spent in that cave so the, the results are spectacular but even to put yourself in that situation you really want to see new things experience new things and show them in a new way yeah i mean that i mean it sounds incredible what, what do you think where is the most extreme places that you filmed because obviously with the latest episode coming well at the time of filming is coming out on sunday i think by the time this airs it will be out um is it is called extremes what's the most extreme location that you were on oh that's that's a tricky question um i think there's a lot to be said about camping in the Arctic, which is pretty extreme. I mean, you know, camping in Cornwall is one thing, you know, it's it's sort of like second level fun, isn't it? You, you've got all your stuff, everyone's enjoying it, but at the base of it, you know, it's a logistical exercise. You do that in the Arctic and, it, and you remove the fun part of that. And it's just logistics. You've got to take everything you need. You've got to take all your food for two and a half months. You've got to have tents that sort of are meant to withstand um, snow, wind, everything. But then when they don't, they get blown, you know, a mile away on the tundra. You know, all your items and personal things are scattered across the tundra. You've got to go and collect it. You've then got to find somewhere to wash, which you don't because there's no there's no there's no water really to do that and it's freezing cold the toilet is a ply box a box of you know made of ply that is just sat on the tundra there's no there's no shield there's no nothing so you know you're getting battered by blizzards or wind or sun maybe once a day once a year sorry um you know, and, uh, you know, there's, and, and then you've got wolves, right? You've got wolves running around. Uh, they're pinging guy ropes off of your tents. Um, 
they are just super inquisitive. These wolves, they're, they're super habituated. They'll come right up to you and explore that. They'll, they'll take, we had a scientist there working with us for, for a week or so and, and they took her Wellington boot, shredded that. You know, that, that, that probably has to be the most extreme. And you'd think actually living inside a cave deep underground in perpetual darkness would be as extreme as you get. But actually, I think you'd probably go the Arctic over the cave. Add to everything that, that Theo said, add COVID to that mix, which meant that the one um, place where you could sleep on the island that was inside, they weren't allowed to go into. And yeah. then the wolves that they were filming travel 50 kilometres. 50 like miles, 50, up to 50 miles up to a day. 50 miles a day. And you yeah. have to, they had to kind of move that 50 miles. They were on, you were on kind of small four quad by bikes. four quad bike type things, but they get stuck in the mud. I've heard one story at least of, of uh, Theo going out and someone forgetting the shovel, That'll getting stuck in the mud, yeah. having to dig it out by hand. It's quite a, and then having to, actually in the end dig a uh an airstrip yeah yeah we had to clear an air a runway you know as you do it's all in the day so i mean you know talk about things you don't plan to do or ever get trained to do you know i i did a degree in zoology and that was great and i love the animals and that's why i do my job definitely didn't do a degree in runway clearance or anything like that i mean the things that you have to do for this job are insane sometimes yeah, you, I guess you don't realise. I mean, when we sit on Sunday night and we, we, you know, we watch the show, and we think that's amazing, we've got no comprehension of everything that's gone before to get that shot. I think wasn't there one? Was it the elephants? Possibly, if I remember correctly from the notes, but it, it was you. You were you were filming for about four hundred and fifty hours to get the right shot. Is that something like that? Yeah, was it? Uh, I, so many. I mean, that, I mean that's, yeah. that's like the story of almost every sequence. Yeah. There was one. There was one, one sequence that comes to mind: the mugger crocodile sequence, where the it took six different shoots, delayed some of them delayed to to get sorry three years to actually get the shot that we needed. On the last part, we were delayed because of COVID. We were delayed because there was political strife, and we were delayed because the weather doesn't play ball these days. It's, it's obviously changed markedly. Um, and then when they finally did get there, the cameraman had to spend 300 hours sat in a hide, just in a hide. And when we talk about hide, it's like, like sitting in a phone box kind of thing. 300 hours for the first hundred hours, nothing happened whatsoever. Baking hot sun. What we were trying to, the, the crocodiles we were trying to film and the prey animals that come close to them, as soon as he opened a water bottle, it would frighten the prey animals off. Um, and then, and for the last 200 hours, he had to really keep on it, really, really keep watching. And he taught himself to sleep in five second micro bursts, apparently. I mean, none of us can work out how that works, but uh, it definitely did work because he got the shot. Wow. Uh, well, I mean, every parent needs to learn that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if that's a game changer, if you can do that. Fantastic. You're laughing. <clears throat> no, I think it's, um, I mean, it's incredible how, you know, this, this huge amount of effort, like what happens if you just don't get the shot? Do you just simply wait and keep trying until you get something? But, but, well, basically, yeah. I mean, you wait, the real skill, I mean, I, I, um, Theo's letting me answer this because I think he wants me to um, play sunshine. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the real... <laughs> 
the the real skill of a producer on location is being able to recognize when a story is going to happen, when it's not going to happen, how you might be able to change that story. So obviously we've spent a huge amount of, of, of time and effort getting to a place and sometimes it doesn't pay off, you know, but, but we like to say that nature writes the greatest scripts and often you do then come over, come across something that is, that you just hadn't expected. So the real skill of a producer like Theo is being on the ground and changing the story when he's there, if necessary. So you do get something that you come back with. It's very, I, I mean, over the course of five years, there are very, very few stories that didn't come to fruition. Mm. Um, once we've gone to it. I think it's all about, it's all about like risk. When you go out on these shoots, you've got, you know, something you desperately, desperately want to get, which is, you know, your general story. And, and parts of that story are, are like really rare. Sometimes they happen, sometimes they don't. You want it all to happen, but some of it, some, you know, sometimes it doesn't. We uh, had a team out filming Snow Leopards in Mongolia and Snow Leopards are notoriously hard to film. But, you know, as a planet Earth staple animal, I was like, we've got to, ha- we've got to have these Snow Leopards in the episode. So we'd, we'd set out camera traps for 8,000 hours, right? 24 camera traps for a, over a couple of years in, in, out in Mongolia in the, in the Gobi Desert, right? It's, one of the hottest, one of the coldest places in the world. It's, you know, an extraordinary place. And these snow leopards, obviously super elusive animals. And we'd never really been able to film cubs in a really close up and intimate way. And we, we were using these camera traps to do that. But also what I wanted to do was try and film snow leopards with a drone as well, because it's it's rarely been done before. And you know, the scientists are like, you're crazy. Don't, don't even bother. You know, we, we, we spend months out here every year. We don't see them. And so anyway, I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. Let's give it a go. And, and like, you know, the director was ringing me up or, or WhatsApping me and she was like, oh yeah, the, um, the animals, I mean, we're not seeing anything. We're just seeing Ibex, right? We're just seeing goats. And, and I was like, keep at it, keep at it. You know, you've got to be optimistic. Keep going, keep going. She's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. And anyway, she, she, she messaged me one day and going, yeah, yeah, we, we filmed some snow leopards. I'm like, what? That's amazing. Send me a clip through. And it was honestly, it was like, it's like something out of the Lion King. It was the most amazing images of a, of a mom and cubs walking along a ridgeline at sunset. And the, and the, and the drone is flying actually away from the, from the pilot. It's about three kilometers away. It's freezing cold. And to use these drones, it's super fine motor control, right? So you, you, it's pointless wearing big gloves. You want to take your gloves off. So he was there, bare hands, minus temperatures, freezing his little fingers off. And he knows he's only got one shot at this because the scientist standing there going, you're never going to see this again. I've never seen it. No one will ever film this again. You know, this is truly once in a lifetime moment. And he's got a battery life of about 40 minutes and he's flying there. He's like, you know, the wind is howling over this ridge line. And he honestly gets some of the most amazing shots of snow leopards I think they've ever been filmed. It's, it's remarkable. And what, what it does for the episode is it, is it sums up this feeling of, yeah, the extremes are a hostile place. But species have, have evolved over millions of years to live in them, right? It, they are super well adapted. But actually, you know, as much as there are these wilderness places and, and there is hope in the natural world that there are these places still existing, our world is also changing and it's becoming more extreme. And I think that's the essence of the episode. Mm. But also what that speaks to, and what we're talking about that drone flight, it's a feat of excellence. And sometimes when you do get onto these into these situations, you only have one shot. Uh, and then to come away with 
with what is one of the most beautiful shots of snow leopards, or probably the most beautiful shots of snow leopards you will ever see is, is kind of what planet earth is about. Um, it's putting yourself right at the limits of what you're pushing yourself right to the limits of what you can actually achieve. That's, that's how the bar keeps getting higher and higher. I've got a couple of questions that um, are more, um, well, you're, you're both dads, I believe at least. Um, and I'd like to ask firstly, how your job impacts the way that you were parents because there's this is a completely different thing i mean we talk about extreme and parenting is quite extreme in a lot of cases but but um that kind of um optimism and persistence that you have to have in huge amounts when you are putting together planet earth do you do you feel like sometimes you come back and go oh that's quite easy in comparison to that. Or, or, or do you take those traits that you need to have and those skills for planet Earth and kind of think, oh, I'll use that when my child will not go to sleep or, or whatever it is? How do the two things speak to each other? I mean, I've only been doing this 11 months, so right. So I'm, I'm relatively new in the dad, dad scheme of things. But all I can say, and to the much, to the, to the massive irritation of my partner, I think being, being a dad is very much like being on a shoot. You know, it's a sleep deprivation. There's boredom. There's like massive highlights and then there's huge lowlights too. And you know, you're on this kind of oscillating graph of highs and lows and. Everything in between, but yeah, it's uh, it's it's actually very like a shoot. I, I reckon if you if you're a dad, you can do a shoot. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I, I think you're probably right. You can def- that, it's definitely that way round, isn't it? Yeah. If you can be a dad, you can definitely go on one of these shoots. And a lot of it is about having not unbridled optimism, but being absolutely just loving to face a challenge. It's really that that moment when you're giving a, a baby and you walk out of hospital and you've never, I mean, you haven't even carried the thing for for. Um, for nine months that your partner has had and you've just handed this beautiful thing that you love so much but you've got no idea what to do with it i mean they hadn't i don't know about you but they hadn't even taught me how to put him into the car seat yeah yeah. i had no idea how to do that um yeah much harder than being on a shoot i'll give you that i'll do 18 days underground anytime yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah in comparison yeah living in a cave (laughs) Um, and I guess like also I'd like to ask what moments you've seen and what moments have you witnessed of fatherhood in the wild in terms of the animals and I was asked or I was, it was suggested that I ask about the jacanas that how you say or jacanas jacanas yeah um, jacanas are also called lily trotters and it's pretty extraordinary that story actually so and in fact, there are, across the series, there are, there are some real super dads. But this this Jakarna is extraordinary. So Jakarna males parent as as single parents, um, and they live on the floods of the Okavango, um, so in Botswana and Namibia, and they live on lily pads, so on top of the water. But they've got aerial predators and they've got um, predators from underneath in, in the form of crocodiles. And they've got these really precocious kid, uh, kids. As soon as they come out of the the, the um, egg, they're ready to go wandering and explore and they can eat as soon as they come out. They've got feet that 
I think they're about twice the size of the chip when they come out. They're huge. So they're kind of quite klutzy and they're always falling over and falling into the water. Um, And this super dad teaches them how to be a lily trotter. At the same time, he's trying to keep them alive. Um, And when danger is near, he lets out a shriek. And a special, special call. Well, I guess it is a shriek because that's exactly it's like your kids when they step onto the edge of the road. You kind of calls and they've got to freeze. And that's that's the one thing they've got to do. Um, and it, I've never seen this behavior before, but it, it, in in the sequence, this proper super dad then went off to try and distract a crocodile um, to take him away from the from the chicks. And I mean, that is bravery beyond, right? Yeah. When he comes back, he manages to get, he manages to find three of his chicks. He calls them, they come back and they come back over to him, but one of them's missing and he has to go off and, and find them. And it is like, it's one of the most nail biting, uh, heartfelt moments in the whole series. It, if you haven't watched it, watch it, watch it. If you have watched it already, you know what the ending is. So I don't need to tell you, but um, uh, unless you want me to tell you. No, 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 let's save it for the listeners who haven't seen it yet. One of the other extraordinary things they do, what's the other extraordinary thing that he does, how he carries them around? Oh, this is like a test. It is, don't you? Have you watched it? Oh, yeah, when he tucks them up under their wings. Yeah. Yeah, that is cool. Actually, it's one of those shots, isn't it, where he stands up and he just sees chicks fall out from underneath his wings. Yeah, kind of, he picks them up underneath the wings and carries them around. So Mm. you kind of got this weird alien-like thing. You've got a bird, this bird with really long legs and massive feet walking around with loads of legs hanging out from underneath its wings. Wow. It's just, it's just incredible. Like when you see these things on, on the screen or, or if you guys in real life. And is it humbling to think that when it, when everything boils down to the kind of basics, your job as dad, kind of the same as the Jakarta. Like protect, teach at the same time how to navigate this ridiculous world that our kids are growing up about. It must be it must be humbling to think when it all falls down when you lose all the glitz and the glam and the tech and the whatever else. It's kind of the same principle as what you're witnessing in front of you. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. It is, it is humbling. I remember the first shoot I ever did internationally was in um, it was in Uganda following some chimpanzees. And a moment I'll never forget. I, well, I definitely wasn't a dad at this point. I was way, way young. And um, this little chimpanzee baby, I'm not sure, probably around one, two years old, so tiny, but playful. And it was up in a tree. And it, and I, I was like, oh, I'll see if I can play hide and seek with it. And so I'd come out from behind the tree and look at it and he would, and it, and it would copy me. And it was truly amazing. I mean, like that's that's one of those moments where you realise chimpanzees, humans, you know, are basically the same. And I think that speaks to your point of like how, how humbling it is and how how similar it is. You know, um, I think I think it, we we are not far remo- far removed from from the natural world when you strip out everything. And those chimpanzees, yeah, they, I've been thinking about them a lot recently as I've been playing quite a few hours of peekaboo. <laughs> Probably far more obedient than your child will ever be. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. But it is. But to, to that humbling point, it's it, it's it's incredible to watch how any parent parents 
Um, and, and when you are down, you're in that kind of place, you've been sitting in a hide for however long you've been sat in, sat in it, you're watching all of this happen. And actually, every single thing that they do is something that you really aspire to do, to run around. I mean, I don't, to run around like a jacana. I mean, he's all over the place looking after after those. They're they're just bomb burst in the world's most dangerous place, and then they and and he keeps them all together. It is extraordinarily humbling. Do you think as well? I don't want to read. Well, maybe this isn't reading too much into it. But do you think actually sometimes we could learn a lot from observing parenting in the natural world? I mean, we could probably all learn quite a lot from observing any dads. That's quite, that's quite, can we? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's, that's difficult to say that you, I'm sure there are some crap dads in the, in the natural world as well, but they, um, yeah. uh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure we could more than anything else, probably just spending that bit of time. It's really hard work when you're on location, but you do have a lot of time to yourself and you do have a lot of time to actually, um, uh, kind of meditate in a strange way, don't you? And that's got to be a pretty good thing. Mm. I think another another great dad story from the from the series is the is the ostrich. So that's in the deserts and grasslands episode, and and that's an amazing situation where the dad has to has to do basically most of the sort of childcare and 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 and, and sort of nesting behaviour. So looking after the chicks as the ne- at the nest whilst they're whilst they're emerging, and the, and the emergence happens over days, right? So he's there stuck there for for ages. He gets you know a little bit time to go off and eat but but largely he, he takes the night shift he, he he's doing all those things that we're all familiar with and um and yeah and, and, and it's just an amazing story to see them all hatch but then one of these one of these eggs is is left unhatched he has to go you know, he can't sit there forever with these chicks that are like going all over the place so he he, he, he makes the decision to leave leaving this one one un unhatched egg and again i'm going to spoil it for people but that is a moment to watch because that's that's a great natural world dad story the reason he has to leave just which is is quite important is that they decide to nest in the middle of the hottest desert in the mm. world and the the reason they do that is that fewer predators come out so hence the fact that they have to he have to they have to get the chicks or he has to get the chicks off the off the plains and into the shade at some point it's just honestly it's remarkable we you know me and my wife and and, and we sit the kids down and we watch it and every time we watch it we're just amazed what i don't know if this is a difficult question or whether you get asked it a lot but what is the one standout moment of hundreds of, of moments that are obviously incredible which is the one that you think i will never forget that particular moment and, and why that is such a difficult question. Well, it's very, very difficult for Matt because he's sitting next to me and obviously he has to say something in the extremes episode. But um, <laughs> for me, for me, obviously, the you know, in the extremes episode, uh, it's, I think, I think it's probably the moment when we were underground. Um, so this, this cave is called Hansong Dong in Vietnam. One of the biggest caves in the world. It's five miles long, a couple of hundred meters high in some places and, and huge, you know, you could fly a jumbo jet through it. It's massive. And there are these points in the cave where the roof has collapsed. And what it does is it allows these, you know, light to, f- to flood in, right? And it, it, these, these forests grow like 200 meters underground. It's, it's insane. 
absolutely amazing. But what it also does is, is when, when the, um, when the earth's tilt aligns with, with the sun at certain points of the, so certain times of the year, just a few weeks a year, in fact, you get these sunbeams, these god rays flooding down into the cave and it, they reach further because of the angle. They reach further down into the cave than usual. And, and we wanted to film this and that's sort of why we went in this time period. And obviously in the, in the film, it looks stunning, but to be there and witness that after days spent in the darkness was like, all right, I get it now. I get why this sun thing's so important. You know, it was just like so bright when we were trying to film the cave with our like tiny little lights and I know, but lighting a few hundred meters at a time, the sun comes in and you know, the, the whole thing is is lit up and, and there's this warmth and glow that comes from it it was genuinely emotional watching it it was truly astonishing and then when we when we came out of the cave a few days later and 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 we we sensed the world outside the cave you know it was like so green it was so vivid the smell was like nothing you'd ever experienced before it was like an assault on the senses so for me both experiencing that and actually in the film itself that is a massive highlight never forget that yeah no, there's a beautiful there's a beautiful bit in the in the well it's a beautiful bit of the film but it's also a beautiful bit in the making of of extremes that speaks to that point and um, for for me it's a really, as Theo said, it's a difficult question and it is a bit like being asked to choose your favourite child. It's, <laughs> um, it, there are lots of brilliant, brilliant sequences, moments across the series and I think each one has its standout, its standout um, moment. For me, in the Extremes episode, it might be the fragility of those beautiful butterflies, the, the monarch butterflies in, in, the, in Mexico and... and they they go on this long mig- migration and then they hibernate in this uh, in this woodland in <clears throat> in the mountains of Mexico um, to kind of sit out the winter as it were. But when and and that's fine when they huddle together for warmth, it's totally amazing. But if 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 an extreme event comes through, a big storm or something, they all get blown out of the uh, out of the canopy. It's not really the canopy, is it? But it's, they get blown mm. out of the tree. And they land on the floor and on the floor it is freezing. And you've got these incredibly fragile creatures on the floor that would freeze to death if they can't climb back up. It's much too cold for them to fly and they have to climb back up the up the tree trunk. Um, and we follow one journey. And then at the end of it, we see them all take off as the sun comes out. And it is just the most kind of awe-inspiringly, spine-tinglingly beautiful moment. Mm. Um, yeah, this show is absolutely filled with beauty. Yeah. Um, it sounds yeah, just incredible. I, I, last question and then um, we'll, we'll wrap up. But when you take that um, level of inspiration that you have had because of what you've been experiencing and, and, and seeing on, on shoots and in the making of, of Planet Earth, how do you move that into trying to inspire your, your kids, like without taking them there, which maybe one day you, you, you'll have the opportunity to do. But how do you try to think, oh, I've been inspired by these most incredible things that I've seen. How do you then try and deliver that to your kids to inspire them? Or will for you, Theo? 
Uh, well, for, for me, it's about finding beauty in as much as you possibly can. There's beauty in everything. You don't have to go to Vietnam or Namibia or the Gobi Desert to see these wonderful things. They're right on your doorstep. And one of the, in this series itself, one of the, one of my highlights was filming in Kent actually and seeing all the butterflies and listening to the birds. And partly it was because David Attenborough was there, I'll admit, but um, it was, it was a, awe-inspiring moment the sun came out it'd been raining for days around it it was just thoroughly beautiful so so with my kids I that's why I try and inspire what's that's what we talk about there is there is beauty in everything and obviously then it frustrates me sometimes that they find more beauty sometimes in their laptop or their phone than they do in what's outside but when they do actually get outside and when we do get to the seaside or for a walk in the hills it's it's a, just a beautiful moment. In fact, we went away a couple of weekends ago and uh, went to stay in a little kind of, it's like a bunkhouse in Wales. And the kids turned around at one point and said, why was it when you were really little that you always used to drag us on walks and now we would love to go and see what's out there. You never take us. And it's just that this kind of delightful moment that you suddenly think, you know what? I, I may have spent, I may have thought I'd said too much, but it's, it seeps in. There's great, there's great um, uh, inquisit- inquisitiveness from children. They want to get out and they want to see things. I think it's, I think it's possibly even more than, than that. I think in, in, in more grown up children, I think there's that inquisitiveness mm-hmm. for sure. But certainly for, for my 11 month old, you know, like up to this point, you you take him outside and he will calm down immediately. Like it's really, really noticeable. I'm sure not every child is like this, but for him, it's the power of being outside. I don't know what it is. It's not like, you know, I don't, I don't live in a national park. I just live in, in like, you know, in Bristol, take him outside and it's just, it's the air, it's the sound. I don't know what it is, but it just calms him down. And it's amazing how much it resets. And I think that has been a real observation that I think I will take forward and, and try and use that in a way that can kind of help him adjust to the world, right? Just to kind of relax and to slow down sometimes and trying to, trying to trying to get that pace right of life because I think that's the most important thing. I think that's the thing we've all lost, right? Is that, you know, we all live like a super fast life. It's all in our pockets. It's all in our phones. It's all in our face. But slowing down with nature, that is something I'd love to be able to teach. Yeah. Well, I think there's probably not many people better positions to teach him, him those skills than, than yourself. Gents, it's been brilliant. I, I feel like I could ask you hundreds and hundreds of questions for the rest of the day and probably the rest of the week. Um, but um, we'll have to wrap it there. Um, thank you so much. Firstly, on a personal level, for just producing such an incredible show. I've enjoyed, I haven't watched all five episodes that didn't come out yet, but we're catching up. Um, and I'm looking forward to Extremes on Sunday. Um, but so thank you for producing such a wonderful show. Um, and secondly, thank you for your time today. No worries, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Yeah, great pleasure. And thank you very much for, for inviting us. A Dad's Net original podcast.